Amen. You may be seated. We probably know by now uh, that Israel's been attacked. Hamas is doing what they do. Uh, I'm sure backed by Iran. So just keep them in your prayer. Cup of trembling, the Bible says. I want to read this Psalms 122, 1 through 6. It says, the joy, it's the joy of going into the house of the Lord. Hey, we might struggle sometime getting here. But for every believer, there should be a joy that started in the first century, that started when Jesus Christ birthed the church. It's his bride. It's a psalm of David. David says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together where the tribes go up the tribes of the Lord to the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of Yahweh for thrones are set there for judgment. The thrones of the house of David pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. So keep them in your prayer. We should always do that. Everybody I heard because I'm always listening might not say much, but I'm always listening. And I heard uh, Pastor Jonathan and Bob Bowman speaking about we love conspiracy theorists and all the things conspiracy theorists thinks up. And, you know, I've got a little of that in me. But if we would just really read our Bible, it tells us the story. It tells us things that's going to happen, things that we, we can't even imagine. I could... As I, when I became a Christian, I could never imagine that something would have the Jewish people in the latter times uh, worshiping a, something like an automaton or something. And now we hear about AI and all these things. And that's just the beginning. Because when the, when the bride of Christ is lifted up and taken out of here, supernatural things will begin to happen at that time. The Bible speaks of a great delusion. We must keep our eyes. We must be minded of the scripture. The only thing that is sacred and true, we can take the word of God from Genesis to Revelation as the word of God because that's exactly what it is. And so if we keep our eyes on the word of God, if we allow the Holy Spirit to pour into us, even though we might have a stiff heart and don't want to bend to his will, sooner or later you must. And allow him to work in us because no one is perfect but the Savior. And that's why we keep our eyes on him and let him build us up and let him speak to us. We'll make it home. So, Pray for Jerusalem. Pray for Israel. Pastor Jonathan, I'm going to, he did uh, 
Chapter 15 did a great job. I'm going to start at verse 55 and just read it, take a running start, and we'll move on to the last chapter. We'll be studying the book of Hebrews next. And if I can get it, remember when we did the book of uh, Romans and we gave everybody, they picked a piece of scripture and you studied it and we put it on the camera? I think we're going to do that again for Hebrews. Hebrews is a very good book, as all of them. But we'll start off at verse 55 of Chapter 15, Paul is exclaiming now, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, as Pastor John said, the grave, where is your victory? It has none. The sting of death, what makes death so horrific is sin. We die because we sin. And the strength of sin is the law. Paul says, I would have not known what covetous was unless the law has said, you shall not covet. We've broken God's commandments. We were doomed. But then the God-man came in all of his graciousness, in all of his mercy, in all of his love. Verse 27, he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is he your Lord this morning? That's the question. He is the Lord, but is he your Lord? It does no good that he's Lord if he's not your Lord. And then, therefore, my beloved brethren, Paul says this is what should make us steadfast. He says, you're steadfast, you should be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor here is not in vain in the Lord. With that, Paul brings to the conclusion the essential matters in his letter that he had received from the Corinthians. But he has two more things he has to look at in chapter 16. And apparently what was going on, they had, they had written Paul this letter for their instructions as to the part of a collection for the poor in Jerusalem, how they are to go about it, and how it is to, how it is to get to Jerusalem. So Paul gives them the instructions similar to those he had given to the other churches. But if we listen very carefully we will still sense some tension here as well. So Christian tact is instructive to how Paul managed the situation to his relationship with the churches. Now concerning the collection for the saints. So this shows they were... They knew what was going on and whom it was intended for. Paul says, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatian, so you must do also, Corinthians. This is the fifth now concerning in the scriptures of the book to 1 Corinthians he talks about. The word is not used again, in speak, speaking of the collection in the letter. Paul says, this collection is a collection of monies. Now, other times Paul would use that word collection, and it's a theological content when he uses it most of the time. It's used for fellowship. It's used for service. It's used for grace, blessings, or divine service. All of this 
together goes that this collection was not some mere matter of money to Paul. It was an active response of God's grace that not only ministered to the needs of the Lord's people, but also became the kind of, it was a kind of ministry to God as well, which resulted in thanksgiving. That's what it should have brought from it towards God. And so it's really an outstanding of fellowship. Paul says, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Paul, on his way through Galatia, headed to Ephesus, Acts 18, 23, he probably informed them of the collection and how they could best go about getting this collection. So he instructs them in verse 2. Paul says, this is what I want you to do on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, the Lord's day. He says, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. I don't want the hassle when I get there of a collection. The Corinthians are to follow the same instructional pattern that Paul had given to the church of Galatia. He says on the first day of the week, it, it literally reads, let each one buy oneself, which implies that each person is to store up what is set aside until the designated time. The phrase by oneself almost certainly means at home. And then Paul says on the first day of the week, we know traditionally this has been on one of three New Testament texts that have been used to support the Gentiles' believers of Sunday rather than the Jewish Sabbath. You have, and that starts at Friday evening, they say, when you see the first three stars, until Saturday evening when they come back out. That was the Jewish day of worship. It seems far more likely, though, that the weekly reckoning with religious significance, especially since it reflects the Jewish tradition of counting days with reference to the Sabbath. That's how they count days. Luke gives an account of this in Acts 27. It says, now on the first day of the week, that Sunday, when the disciples came together to break bread. So it implies strongly that Paul and the others waited in Troas until the first day of the week, precisely because that is when the Christians gathered for the breaking of bread on Sunday. Paul says, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. The NIV says, keeping with your income. But for our culture, we have to understand where a number of the community were slaves and had no income. So it was in accordance to whatever success you had during that week. If you found a small job, if you did something and you stored up money, Paul says, take some of that money and save it until Sunday because that's when the family comes together, the church comes together, and then give that money for the collection. There's no hint of a tithe here or proportionate giving. The gift is simply to be related to their ability from week to week as God has prospered them. And then the purpose that there be no collection, Paul says, when I come. Paul's con concern seems to be in part that 
By their weekly setting aside from their success, there will be a sum worth the effort of sending to the people of Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, and when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, Paul says, I'm not going to pick them out. I want you to pick them out. I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So when Paul gets to Corinth, he will write a letter of commendation to Jerusalem. But what's What I find strange, what's significant, is that Paul has determined to send along representatives of their congregation, of the current congregation, probably to key churches in larger geographical areas to accompany this gift. Now, why would he do this? They would be carrying a large sum of coins, no dollar bills, no paper, So there is safety in numbers, but also personal representation mattered much, especially back then. So when a church would, we're sending our money, you would have a representative from that church going along aside the way. So the church in Jerusalem would know who's giving this money and how the churches are doing. Paul seems a little hesitant to go to Jerusalem at this time. Verse 4 says, but if it is fitting, that's if it is advisable, which can mean if it is worthy that I go also, they will go with me. Now, he's talking about the gift. Is he talking about the gift or the appropriateness of of him going to Jerusalem? Some think from the Corinthians' mind, if it is your mind that I should go, if the Corinthians do, they want Paul to go. And it's probably ambiguous because that's the way the scriptures are sometimes. You make up your own mind with that. But I am reminded when Paul had a gift he was going to take to Jerusalem, it says in Romans 15, 23, Paul says, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. And by the time he wrote his next preserved letter to the Corinthians, he had decided to accompany the gift. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and Romans 15. Now, usually, this is not a primary text when it comes to money and giving to the church. You find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 or or 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But there's something we can still learn from this text. It's the worthiness of the project itself and the proper theological motivation for giving must be found elsewhere. But what caught my eye is the very matter-of-fact way the issue is taken up. On a weekly basis, they should set aside money for other people to prosper in the Lord. There was no pressure. There were no gimmicks, no emotion. A need had to be met. Like we have needs, like every church has needs. And the Corinthians were capable of playing a role in it. In a day of highly visible campaigns, I was watching, I started back watching Fox News, so I was watching news, and um, they were talking about 
politicians sending out texts to receive money and all this stuff, where there was none of this going on in the church of Jerusalem. There was no gimmicks. There was no pressure. There was no emotions involved. There was a need, and they met that need. Perhaps it also says something about generosity. Paul expected of those who were disciples of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 tells us, Paul speaking, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. He's taking the overland route here. And when he says, I pass through, it implies not that he intends simply to be there overnight, as it were, but he's overseeing these various churches. That's what Paul does. He says, for I am passing through Macedonia, but says this to emphasize the desire both to return to these and to let the Corinthians know also very soon could have a degree of delay to it. As in 1 Corinthians 4.19, the beginning part, it says, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, Paul says. So these next two sentences stress Paul's eagerness. I don't know if Paul's a glutton for punishment or he just loves the Lord that much. I know which one it is. He loves the Lord that much. In a church that fought him the majority over everything, Paul says, I love you, Corinthians, and I want to make sure your walk in the Lord Jesus Christ is strong no matter what. So he's probably concerned how he will find the church in Corinthian. He comes and whether he may take some time for him to square things away between him and that Corinthian church, he says it's going to take a little while. Verse 6 tells us, and it may be that I will remain, this is his hope, or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. So he expresses doubt at first as to his destination following the Corinth trip. And probably behind his hesitation, Paul's hesitation, is the yearning to take this collection to Jerusalem in the east and visit probably Rome in the west. He says that you may send me on my journey. That's a technical term for providing a person with food, with money, with traveling companions, so as to ensure safe and a successful journey. It really has the earmarks of the Old Testament peace offerings. And if you remember Paul, he, made, he makes a big fuss, he makes a big deal about not asking anyone, he told the church of Corinth, for anything when he gets there. He would rather, he says he would rather do without than ask you guys to give him anything for the gospel's sake. But in this letter, he's asking for a few things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 11 through 12, Paul says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 15, I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die 
than that anyone should make my boasting void. It reminds me of how they talked about Paul. Of course, he wasn't there as they were talking. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 10, this is what they said about Paul. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. I can attest to that. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. And it wasn't all the churches, but Paul loved all the members at Corinth, whether they said that about him or not. Verse 7, Paul says, For I do not wish to see you now, speaking to the Corinthians, on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you. And then he says, if the Lord permits. And when he says the Lord permits, it's always Paul's own ultimate subject to Christ. So having first explained his determination to go to Macedonia and then his desire to spend considerable time in Corinth, Paul now offers a final word to that present situation in Ephesus. Verse 8, he says, Paul tells them, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Now, remember that both the Ephesians and the Corinthian churches were predominantly, these were Gentile churches. So minimally, this is a reflection of Paul's Jewish heritage, which just as a week is divided by days from the Sabbath, so the year is divided by annual feasts in the Jewish time. So it does not actually imply that he and the churches kept the feast, but that it is a covenant, a convenient time reference to a period in mid-spring. So that's what we're talking about. But on the other hand, with a casual mention of this anyway, it says in Acts 20, 16, Paul says it again, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. We know the, the, the day of Pentecost is when the church was birthed, but it was also Penta, 50. It was 50 days, so when they said Pentecost, it consumed all of those 50 days. So it just wasn't one particular day. It's sort of like the same thing when he says in Corinthians 5, 7 about the Paschal Lamb, Passover or Easter, but then that Pentecost was a 50-day period. So Paul says, I'm going to meet you somewhere during Pentecost, during that 50-day transition there, the celebration of the 50th day. Then Paul tells them in verse 9, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. You know, we had an elders meeting yesterday, and we was talking, should we con continue to minister in the same spot that we usually go to and minister at. We have to be wise enough that if we're not bearing fruit at a certain place, well, the Lord is probably trying to say we need to move somewhere else. And so we kicked that around and thought, and we're still going to give it a few more chances, but we're looking for a place we can be fruitful. We can go out and minister to people. 
So if anyone here knows a neighborhood or a great opportunity that we can go and share the gospel, please let us know because that's what we're praying about. We need to be able to discern these things. These two sentences next uh, describes Paul's lifelong labor as a missionary of the gospel. We don't have it so bad. The same Holy Spirit that was in Paul is in us because just about everywhere Paul went, there was a beating waiting for him. There was rejection, Victor, waiting for him. And it reminds me of James, Jesus' brother, 517, he said, because we tend to look at these apostles or these prophets or these Old Testament saints, that they were super beings, they were superheroes. But the same Holy Spirit that was in them, really we have more. The Holy Spirit would come upon them at times But the New Testament believer has the Holy Spirit in them. We should be doing greater things. James says in 517, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain just by praying. Just by praying. And it did not rain and for three, for three and a half, three and a half months. And he prayed again. And the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah was no superhuman. Elijah had a connection with the Lord. He was a praying man. He was an obedient man. Not that he was perfect, but he was listening to the Lord. No different from any of us. Paul says, and there are many adversaries I want you to think back to Luke's account of Acts 19.22. Paul had already sent Timothy on ahead of him, although Luke had probably condensed a bit of the account of Paul's plans in his preceding sentence. Luke portrays the considerable success of Paul's missions wherever he went, except for that time he went to Athens. Hundreds of people would come to know Christ. And it just so happens that Artemis, the silversmith, because he made these little small trinkets, didn't like people stop buying from him, messed up his business, and they beat Paul. And so Paul knows things that's coming his way. Everywhere he goes, he was either beaten, talked about, any of those things. And in Ephesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he says, I'm being persecuted by wild beasts. Nobody knows what was going on there. So at the time this letter was written, my point is Paul is going to Corinth knowing what might be awaiting him, but he goes anyway. He has the Lord with him. These passages together give a clear picture of opposition to the gospel from outsiders. It should be no surprise to any of us when the enemy comes our way. Paul says, and there are many adversaries. Paul's concerns now shifts from this letter. He's still writing it, but he shifts to his old friend, Timothy. 
He begins to worry about him because he's sending him to Corinth. Why would he be worried that Timothy is going to Corinth? He says, and if Timothy comes, see that he may be with with you without fear. Now, we know Timothy had a fear problem anyway. But Paul reminds them, hey, make sure he's without fear. In 417 in 1 Corinthians, Paul said that he has sent Timothy and that he would be arriving at some point. But what's interesting to me, Paul's concern for Timothy's Timothy being rejected. So once again, there's that tension I was telling you about. Remember, Timothy had worked with Paul. As Paul established the church of 1 Corinthians, Timothy was his right-hand man. He was right there. So why? Why does Paul fear that an old friend might not be well-received? That's the question we must ask. Probably because he knew that the sentiments against him in this church was strong indeed and that it would almost certainly overflow to Timothy. And because Timothy had been specifically dispatched, Paul had called him. He says in 417, remind them of Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus, Timothy. When you get there, you remind them of me and my way of life. So he urges that they see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with them. The very fact that such strong warnings is issued is evidence enough Paul's concern. He says in the latter part of verse 10, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. I'm reminded of Paul says, send Timothy. There's no one like-minded to me as he is. They are to treat Timothy just like They treated Paul in his stead. And then Paul adds another warning. Verse 11, therefore, let no one despise him. That word despise means to treat with contempt. He says, let no one despise him. He says, but send him on his journey in peace. And this probably just reflects the the Jewish tradition That word peace is shalom. They would give the kiss right there. So that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. We don't know who these brethren is, but it's probably the three uh, people we will run, run into in verse 17. Now he says in verse 12, now concerning, he said this for the sixth time in his letter. He says, now concerning our brother Apollos. Read this carefully. I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. Now, if I, I like Apollos, but I love Apollos now. Because the church in Corinth thought There was friction, there was tension, there was trouble, there was division going on with Paul and Apollos. That had been the stirrup. That had been the arguing. They didn't want Paul there. Uh, Apollos speaks better. And I, I want you to catch what Paul says. 
So what this means, by the way, is that their letter to Paul specifically had in it, we want Apollos back. Tell Apollos to come back. But what is remarkable to me, way remarkable, is Paul's approval of this. Shows you the type of man Paul is. Paul says, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren. The brethren in this case are fortunate and the other two in verse 17. So since those are coming, Apollos is obviously he should come. Once again, it's the harmony. Paul wants to know that he has no beef with Apollos and the same with Apollos. But notice Apollos because he knows Paul. It says Apollos resisted the imploring, both the Paul and the church. They wanted him to come. And I believe Apollos said, Paul, if, I'm so sad they treated you like this. I'm not even going to come see them. I'm not even going to spend any time with them right now. He says, if it is your will, do that. So the question is, if it's Apollos' will or God's will that he's not going right now. Most theologians think it's God's will, but still it had to boil down to Apollos being obedient to his will. Paul says, however, he will come when he has a convenient time. Two things about this request are especially significant. First, this is sure evidence that Paul didn't think Apollos responsible for the trouble addressed at the beginning of this letter. Paul says, our brother. And that indicates that Paul's views, their unity in ministry also expressed in the passage. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, when Paul says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? So he paints the picture as Paul really sees it, not as who he says to impress Paul knows they are co-workers in God's service. From Paul's point of view, there is no rivalry between them. Secondly, this is a particular important text in our piecing together Paul's view, both of his own ministry and his true relationship to the church. There can be little question that for him, several of the issues spoken to in this letter, in various ways, poses threats to the apostolic authority, Paul's apostolic authority in the church. That Paul has so often had to fight with the church. Everybody thought Paul was a less of an apostle than anyone else. But Paul, and it's usually in ministry, you can be so close to ministry. My ministry is preaching the word. My ministry is this. No, 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 no. When I step down, when I'm dead and gone, somebody will carry on the word of the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. It doesn't matter about my ministry. My ministry disconnects because it's not my ministry. It's the Lord's ministry. That's what Paul is going to let us know here. It's not his ministry. At 
times it might seem what he, it says that when Paul is so passionate, when he says it in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul boasts on his ministry, the Lord's ministry. In chapter 4, he does the same thing. But Paul never is jealous of another man that he sends or he's around because Paul knows that the Lord has called him to his ministry. And when Paul is dead and gone, somebody else will take over. It's not mine. And Paul wants them to understand the ministry is not his. You might be moved around sometimes in the church. You might go from this place to this place. You might not fit in this area or situation. And we want things to run smoothly, so we move a person here or a person there. But it's not Victor's church. It's God's church. It's not Pastor Brian's. It's not Pastor Jonathan's church. It's God's church. And that's why we have a board of elders. We listen and we pray and we learn, and that's how we take it. And that's what Paul is doing here. Why, why would Paul have let anybody else come? He says, no, bring Apollos. I want pa Apollos to come, knowing how the Corinthians felt about Apollos. Because Paul knew it wasn't his church. Paul wants people to be saved. And that's what it's all about. It reminds me of 1 Peter 2.5. He says, Peter says, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ. We're moved here. We're moved there. But it's for the Lord's purpose and it's for the Lord's doing, for the growth of the church. This shows me the bigness of Paul the Apostle. I say, besides Jesus Christ, in my opinion, he's the greatest person in the scriptures. I love Paul. A man who took beating after beating, was misunderstood, was never ranked with the other apostles in their eyes and in the people's eyes, but Paul did not care about any of that. He, he, he played, he lived for an audience of one. And I advise everybody here and those that are watching, that's who you live for, an audience of one. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace. I'm speaking of Philippians 1, 12 through 18. This also shows the bigness of Paul the Apostles. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. 
The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my gospel, to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. That's, his, that's, that's, that's the air he breathes, Paul. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Now, Paul, after he settles that, he begins to throw out imperatives after imperatives. These are things absolutely necessary. You must be doing. You say you're a believer, you better be doing these things right here. Paul says in verse 13, watch, stand fast in the faith. These are absolutely necessary. Paul, in speaking, I'm reminded of the end times urges watchfulness in light of the Lord's return, but it can also be a call to watchfulness with regard to the enemy. As Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Or it can be to corrosive uh, influences, Acts 20, 31. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul is saying, be on your guard. Don't be slack in your actions or in your mind. Meditate on the word of the Lord. It has the sense of standing firm in Christ as opposed to falling. He says, be brave, be strong. These are called to courage, and we need courage in these days. Paul may have been thinking of Psalms 31, 24. He says, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in Yahweh. Paul is imploring them to stand fast in the gospel he preached and to do so courageously. Are we courageous? In the faith, do we share our faith with others? Our faith in the Lord. Once again, quotation marks, the faith. That's what it's about. People have faith in any, can have faith in any and everything, and they do. But do you share your faith in the Lord with others? That's why you're here. So he gives these imperatives one after another, employing them of the gospel. He says in verse 14, let all that you do be done with love. Oh, wow. And that word love there, this time, is agape. Remember, agape is not about feelings. I'm glad the Lord He's enthused. He is that word. Jesus is love, agape. Because I'm sure there's many days if he was going by emotions, he wouldn't love me so much. But he's committed to me. He's committed to you. And that's what that word means, a commitment. It has nothing to do with feelings. He's committed to us. He's devoted to us. It's a word of behavior. 
It's a word of commitment. So he brings them back to chapter 13, that love chapter, and he makes it certain, Paul makes it certain that they understand the imperative that covers much that he said in this book. He said, let all, let all you do. My mom used to make liver. I didn't like liver growing up, but the only time I would eat a little of her liver is when it was smothered in gravy. That would help compound that, <clears throat> that taste. I didn't like liver. Paul says, with all of this, everything I'm seeing to help you to be able to do these things, everything that I've said, let it be covered in agape. Chapters one through three, their attitude towards them. Chapters four and nine, the lawsuits that was going on. Chapter six, husbands and wife relationships. Chapter seven, the abuse of the weak by those that say they have knowledge. Chapter eight through chapter 10, at the Lord's table, the have nots. You should be doing that in love. Chapters 12 and 14, when it comes to worship, that should be smothered in love. And you know, if they were doing these things in love, Paul wouldn't have to write this letter. So they, were, they, weren't, they weren't doing it. So Paul says, let everything be done in love. Verse 15, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. Probably they were the first one to come to know the Lord's there, Lord there. And they have devoted, the King James says, devoted. That word is addicted. That's what that word, literally translation of that word means. They have addicted themselves, appointed themselves. The idea is Paul didn't do it. They've done it, and they were led by the Spirit to, to the ministry of the saints. We don't know if they were teaching the Word. We don't know if they were feeding people. We don't know if they were just gathering, allowing people to gather in their homes. But it was something special because no one else was doing it, and they were addicted to ministry. I like that. I've been addicted to a lot of things. Y'all haven't. Y'all are clean and good and all that thing. But I've been addicted to a lot of things, and I wish... I was addicted to the ministry. And I'm sure the Lord wants that for all of us. Be addicted to the ministry. You want to be addicted to something? Be addicted to the ministry. Paul commends Stephanus for being addicted to the ministry. And then he says in verse 16, because Archaeus... These two unfortunates, nuttus, they were probably slaves or freedmen. They had bought their freedom. And they were probably staying at his house. Verse 16 says, that you also submit to such. Not only submit to these men, but submit to such as are laboring or serving in the Lord. For Paul, the key 
to such respect or submission is not what sex you are, not your socioeconomics, how you live, the status of your life. Paul, how are you walking with the Lord? How are you being in service to the church? That's what Paul looked at. Paul says these people deserve respect, honor them, and to everyone, not only to him, and to everyone who works and labors with us, speaking of the gospel. I think the real urgency of this passage has to do with their attitude towards Stephanus. Verse 17, he says, I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunus, which means lucky, and the name is of a slave or a freedman or a Achaicus. Same thing, the name of a slave or a freedman. They're coming with him. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. He was saying, you guys couldn't come, but don't worry, these three, they came and they refreshed me. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. If you have ever been down and out and a brother or sister in Christ comes and visit, it's almost like a, a, a good cold glass of water. It refreshes you. It breathes life into you. No one there to tear you down or anything like that. They come and they refresh you. That's a great feeling. And that's what Paul is feeling right now. And he tells them, for they refreshed my spirit. And not only mine, he said, and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Acknowledge people who do that. Some people have that gift of just cheering you up. That's needed. Verse 19, the churches, Paul says, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. You remember that married couple who ministered with Paul? They made tents together in Acts 18. They were in Ephesus with Paul and sent their greetings to Corinthians, to the Corinthian believers. And all the brethren greet you. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Most likely that was tradition that was in the culture, especially the Jewish culture. They're known for that. Paul says in verse 21, the salutation with my own hand. They called him a, a amumasis. He was dictating this letter. Probably Stephan Stephanus was dictating it. And Paul says, hey, give me the pen. We know it from the book of Galatians, Paul couldn't see that well. He has some kind of, they, most scholars say he has some kind of eye disease or something. He caught something and his eyes would run all the time. And this, this, these last few verses were so precious to Paul. He says, get out of the way. Give, give me the pen. I'll write it down. He wants them to know. He says in verse 22, the rest of the letter is with Paul's own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. That love is not agape. That love you're fond of. 
And I'm amazed because the bar isn't set that high to be fond of Jesus Christ. Paul, anything he could write, he says, if anyone is not fond of Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Let him be eternally damned. I bet the Paul, at Paul's top of mind, I bet it went all the way back. Wasn't there, but I'm sure you heard about it. To Simon Peter. Remember Jesus' resurrection? He finds Peter. He didn't want to catch him with all the boys, so he caught him alone. That's the way my Jesus worked. My Jesus never embarrassed me in front of a lot of people. My Jesus waits till I'm alone, and then he comes to me. That's that gentle spirit he has. But he comes to Simon, and he says, Simon Barjona, do you love me? Of course, we know that's agape, he asked him. Do you love me more than these? Maybe he showed him the lambs, I don't know. Then he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Agape again. He says, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you like me? Are you even fond of me? The scriptures in John says, Peter was grieved. He wasn't grieved that, do you agape me? I believe he held his head down when he said, do you even like me? Are you fond of me? Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Do you like me? Peter couldn't take it anymore. Peter says, Lord, you know all things. Come on now. You know that I'm fond of you. You know that I like you. That didn't swipe, God didn't swipe him out of the ministry. He said, okay, even if you even like me, you feed my sheep. So he's not cursing the believers here, Paul. What he's saying to these Corinthians is, you're listening to these people who are saying there's no resurrection. You need to cut them off real quick, right in now, cut them off. They were getting involved with unbelievers. He says, look, if any man is not fond of Christ, Paul says, is not attracted to Christ, that person is lost. Let him be anathema. And then he adds an Aramaic word that's not part of anathema. It's a whole different concept, what Paul writes. He writes, Maranatha. Mara, the Lord, Atha, or, or on our, the Lord cometh. He uses some Greek letters. Remember, he can hardly see. He uses some Greek letters, but he uses an Aramaic word. Aramaic, it really doesn't have the tenses the way we understand them. Some scholars argue, is he saying, is it a plea, Lord, come? Or is he saying, the Lord cometh? Or is he saying, the Lord has come? Yes. He's saying all of them. That's the beautiful thing about the word. Maranatha says, the Lord has come. The Lord is coming. 
and the Lord is presently here. That's a great thing for these Christians, these Corinthians to understand. And us too, if we're walking like the Corinthians. You see, we'll keep a straight walk if we're anticipating the coming of the Lord and he can come at any time. We'll behave like Christians if we are looking for the Lord to come at any time. I think as Peter says, people who live like this, help me out, purifies themselves because they're looking for the Lord to come. So there's a way we will live if we're looking for him to come. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying we won't be living in sexual sin if we're looking for the Lord to come. We won't be suing each other if we're looking for the Lord to come. We won't be adding division in the church if we're looking for the Lord to come. We won't be backbiting and have grudges toward one another if we're looking for the Lord to come. We will have that spreading gravy of love and forgiveness and affection to everyone because the Lord is coming and the Lord has forgiven you and he's forgiven me. How dare I, how dare I not forgive anyone when the Lord has forgiven me so much? That's what Paul is saying. You'll bring healing. And what a great ending here. And did you notice once again that bar in verse 22? It's not a high bar. If anyone does not love, is not fun of the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Same with Peter. He doesn't, he doesn't even make a high bar. It's a, just, just like me. If you like me and hang around me enough, I'm pretty sure you'll get to love me. That's basically what he says. If you can just like me to turn away from your friends and hang out with me for a little while, I guarantee you that you'll come to love me. That's what he tells Peter. His second epistle, Paul said, for I have betrothed of Corinthians, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's how much the apostle Paul was in love with a church that didn't love him. That's how much he was in love with a church that did not love him. He says, I don't care. I'm singing and dancing for an audience of one. That's what it's about. When you live that way, you deflect everything else that comes from everybody else because I'm here to please the Lord. That's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. Paul knew their hearts. Paul knew that church was going to change because he trusted in the Lord. He says in verse 24, my love, he closes this letter to the first the Corinthians, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. He didn't say, my love be with Tony and Sarah and so-and-so and so-and-so. Uh, I'm not going to mention these. Paul says, my love be with you all. 
because that's what agape is. It loves everyone. The great apostles, the worship team can come up, signs off on this letter. It's been an amazing book because I learned so much once again of dying to self. Just dying to self. I'm here to please you, Lord. Everybody, I don't care what people say, everybody wants to be loved. But if you can ever get it into your heart to play for an audience of one, I believe you'll love people better. Because when, you, when, you, when you're looking at Jesus Christ, he's looking back at you and seeing all your faults and foils and foibles, and it begins to spread out. I just take people who, as they are and pray for them. That's what Paul does to a church, a majority of the church that just didn't care for him. And he loved them, and he loved Apollos, and he encouraged Apollos to come back because he played for an audience of one. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of our Lord and Savior and soon coming King, Jesus Christ. Lord, none of us have arrived. None of us will arrive until we see you and we become like you. Until then, Lord, give me eyes that's filtered in your grace that I extend grace to others as I want to have grace extended to me. Lord, I pray for the church at Calvary Store. I pray that we would love your word. I pray that we would love the living word. Because if we do that, if we do that, if we're growing into a daily image of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when there'll be a big smile on your face. And that's what we live to do, Lord, to make you smile. Lord, I pray for any and everyone that is not healthy here, going through sickness, whether it's mentally or physically, Lord, I pray that you would show yourself strong in their lives. Lord, when they think no one else cares, would you show yourself strong? Would you let them know that you have not forgotten, that you care? And if you care, that's all they need, Father. Lord, I pray that you would protect us. I pray for the peace of Jerusalem, like I started this message off. I pray that you would protect Israel, Lord. Israel is not perfect in everything, but they are your people. And I pray that you would protect them and, and give them the ability to fight and to do what's right because they're the cup of trembling. Father God, may we grow closer to you as the days grow shorter. May we love you more than we've ever have. May we long 
for your coming. And I ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's